Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and also an occasional host. On this episode, I'll first be speaking with the Romanian author Mihal Niemtu about what he calls the ghosts of Marx. What defines Marxism and what remnants of this ideology are we seeing today? After that, I'm bringing you a Redux segment, a recording we ran on the podcast a few months ago, but it's one of our most popular. Daniel J. Mahoney, a writer and professor of politics at Assumption College, joins John Caritas, Acton's director of communications, to talk about the legacy of the 20th century Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whose writings are said to have contributed greatly in bringing down the Soviet Union. Links for all the articles and books mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes, which I publish every Wednesday when our episodes release at blog.acton.org. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast at acton.org line. That's acton.org line. The history of the 20th century has dramatically rejected Marxism. From Vladimir Lenin to Fidel Castro, millions suffered and died as a result of this poisonous ideology. But the ideas in Marx's Communist Manifesto are still alive. Karl Marx was a skilled rhetorician, and to many his ideas seem just as tempting today as they were in the century before. Joining me on the show today to break down this topic is Mihail Nemtu, Romanian author and intellectual. Mihail, thank you for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You have an upcoming lecture for Acton University 2019, which is Acton's annual conference, and it's titled The Ghosts of Marx. You write that 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we are witnessing the return of Marxist ghosts. So first of all, how do you define a Marxist ghost? What does that mean exactly? Well, a ghost can be either a thought or even a person. Uh, in, in a sense, you have political actors right now in America which are uh, who are very happy to to say that marxism is a valuable philosophy think of the perennial bernie sanders or think of alexandria cortez she i mean she's certainly someone who wants to bring back marxism to the public forum but apart from that you have uh, the less funny sort of aspect of of this return of marxism which can be discovered on the streets of caracas in venezuela if you look at the number of people that are being uh, discriminated, savagely uh, discriminated by a, an authoritarian regime like the Maduro regime, if you think of what's going on in, still in North Korea, if you think of what's going on in uh, parts of uh, the former Soviet Union, let alone Cuba, then you realize that unfortunately, 30 years after the collapse of the Berlin Wall, communism is still an ideology that's been circulating around. That's not the case with, with Nazism or with uh, fascist ideologies. They have been condemned, rightly so, by history. But unfortunately, there's an appeal uh, that Marxism has uh, among certain groups. And perhaps it's wise to ask, why is that? And perhaps I have some sort of moral competence to ask this question because I was born in a country where we experience, my family, our community experience directly the horrors of communism under the oppressive regime of Nicolae Ceausescu. Well, I want to talk more about that with you, your personal experience in communist Romania. But before we touch on your story, I want to define our terms before we move on in conversation. 
Because we hear phrases like cultural Marxism and even social justice conflated in headlines and commentary currently. For example, Paul Kangor, a professor at Grove City College, wrote a piece for the American Spectator last year, and it was titled Social Justice Warriors Unite. They are today's Marxist revolution. So first, what is Marxism? Basically, what are its defining traits? Well, I should like to begin first by saying that there was a person called Karl Marx who was born in 1818, and uh, he was born in Trier, Germany. He was a student of Hegel, a great German philosopher, who was even the chancellor of the, of the university in Berlin. So this individual who lived for a large amount of time in, uh, in London was sponsored directly by Friedrich Engels, he was someone who, of course, wrote many books. One who is very, which is very famous is called Das Kapital. It's an attempt to investigate the economic, the economic aspects of uh, our human interaction with each other. And then, of course, there is a more political book or manifesto that he produced called The Communist Manifesto. So whenever I'm asked about Marxism, I always want to go back to the person that actually was Karl Marx, and I think uh, there's a very apt sort of saying by a great Polish philosopher, Leszek Kolakowski, the beginning of his book about main currents of Marxism reads like this, Karl Marx was a German philosopher, and there's a great sort of weight that each word carries. He was a German, right, and he was a philosopher. He was a German in the sense that he, he lived in the world of ideas. Karl Marx was somebody who believed that engaging uh, the great sort of the great books, but in particular engaging the thought of Hegel, was something uh, very valuable. Uh, he also engaged other authors. He took from Hegel the notion of dialectics. Perhaps we can go back to that at some point later. But he also took up from another uh, great German thinker, though he was not a Christian, uh, Ludwig Feuerbach, he got from him two notions, one, uh, of course, the notion of materialism, and the other one, the outright atheism of uh, Feuerbach. So in, in essence, what I'm trying to say here is that Karl Marx is, the, is somehow the product of a very, very intense uh, philosophical and intellectual activity that took place uh, in the middle of the 19th century in Germany, particularly in the German universities, of the day. So what motivated Karl Marx to write the Communist Manifesto? Well, I think M Marx was somebody who, to begin with, was genuinely concerned about the situation of an ordinary worker in, say, in Great Britain at the middle of the 19th century. He was somebody who seriously considered, you know, uh, a kind of improvement of the general situation in the working class or among the working class families. But you know, the problem is that sometimes you have uh, good intentions and the wrong solution. And this is something that has to sort of uh, trigger us, if I can use that word. We have to be very, very careful here because there are lots of well-meaning people that have all the wrong ideas. And Marx was precisely in that situation. Why was he so wrong? Because uh, first and foremost, he did not quite understand the contradictions of capitalism as he claimed to um, to be able to understand. He never predicted, for instance, the, the world in which we live. He never thought that somebody who is an average person in America or even in Europe or even in, you know, 
Southern Asia could have access to revolutionary technologies. Think of the people that now in India are changing the software industry, uh, the IT uh, industry. He never thought that somebody, somebody uh, with, with maybe only $100 in his pocket could, could, could produce things that were valuable for, uh, for the global market. So in that sense, I think he was a failed social thinker. He was not able to grasp you know, what capitalism was about. He was not able to see what, for instance, uh, the, property, uh, the property titles would, uh, would lead to in countries like, say, Chile or other uh, African countries which took seriously this notion of property. But on the other hand, he was also wrong when it comes, when it comes to ethics and I would say human nature or human psychology. He honestly believed that we as human beings have to engage in a war, in a constant struggle. He thought that we should define reality as a Manichaean sort of reality. Uh, it's either or. He believed in that sense in a, in, a, in, a, in a dialectics of history. And that means that history must move forward only by class struggle, only by a war that we say the proletariat should wage against those who are the, the owners of the capital, the possessors of the capital. And again, he got it wrong. He got it wrong because, uh, Caroline, there's no way you can be a happy human being if you are always complaining. There's no way you can be a creative human being unless you try to reconcile yourself with the world. Just think of so many authors and, and great poets and great literary figures that were able to produce marvelous works of art in very dramatic circumstances, right? Think of Van Gogh, for instance, right? He was a great painter. He, the value of his uh, paintings right now is huge, but he was able to produce those works of art in a rather dramatic financial and material circumstance. Think of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was, again, he lived in, in the Gulag, who was a, was a prisoner of war first, and then he was um, sent to, uh, to Siberia only because he protested against uh, the Bolsheviks. Again, he produced for many, many years wonderful works of literature, which got him a Nobel Prize even. And, 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 and again, all these examples tell us that he was wrong when it came to, you know, fundamental insights into the human psyche. I know that a lot of the history you just mentioned is very unfamiliar to a lot of us. And I think in a way, as a result, we remove Marxism from its historical effects in Marx's writings. So in what ways do you see Marxism being misunderstood today? What are we not seeing? Because, you know, a lot of people would say, well, we just want justice. But why does that right desire for justice have to be attributed to Marxism or an ideology in general? But justice needs to be done and always human justice is imperfect, right? Because our limited knowledge doesn't allow for more. Uh, we can make errors when we judge, you know, different situations and uh, our judiciary uh, can also sometimes, you know, really uh, make wrong decisions. But, uh, you know, we are still trying to live in a society in the West where there is, you know, an independence of the judiciary from the political influence. And that's called rule of law, right? We have tried very hard to find ways in which justice can be done in our societies. And the best way so far that was uh, thought of in the West is by separating the world of justice, so to speak, uh, the world of the judges and of the juries from the world of political influence. 
Um, and that's, that's something I think very important. We owe it to Montesquieu, we owe it to John Locke. Why should we embrace Marx? Uh, to have justice in our societies is not entirely clear to me. Uh, Caroline, I just feel that I, I have not properly answered your question re re related to social justice, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I think it was uh, with the advent of the Frankfurt School in the, ninth, in the 20th century that people in the West realized they cannot promote Marxism as, a, as an economic philosophy. Why? Because the, the workers were doing rather well. Just think of America today. You can have people that are workers, right? Plumbers, for instance, they, they, who can make more money than a university professor. There's no way you can actually ask a plumber to join you know, a world revolution of the proletariat these days. So the Marxists realized they have to change the words and also the categories they are operating with, the social, for instance, categories. And they decided to replace the proletariat with the minorities of any sort, right? Cultural minorities, ethnic minorities, sexual minorities, and so on and so forth. And then to replace the uh, owners of the capital with the social or the, say, economic majority. And so they are trying to sort of continue this class warfare, this class struggle, by using different terms. And unfortunately, many, many young people try, uh, sort of fall into this trap and believe this is, uh, this is a, a battle they should join only because they have forgotten, sadly, uh, the inner man, as St. Paul once put it. There's a world inside us, right? There's a world of wisdom that can we explore. There's, uh, there's a world that's invisible uh, somehow to the human eye, but which is still real, the world of sentiments, right? Think of, you know, you know, uh, you know, experience of love, for instance. Um, people these days uh, tend not to look at these uh, more existential and, should I say, more spiritual aspects of human experience, but they want to sort of be part of a, something tangible. And that tangible thing can be, for instance, the destruction of the current, of the existing order. Now, the question is, is that way of life, is the, the, the way of life of a, of a social justice warrior fulfilling? Does this bring you joy, peace, wisdom, happiness? And of course, here perhaps someone like Jordan Peterson, the, um, the psychologist and the psychotherapist from Toronto would, would, would uh, kick in and, and, and say, not at all. The only source of happiness is a world in which we have also responsibilities. We take up responsibilities for us and for those who are living in our neighborhood, for our family and for our community. And, and that notion of uh, accepting and embracing individual responsibility, which is so dear to the founders of, uh, of Acton Institute, that notion is far less appealing when you're young, of course, but it's still extremely, extremely relevant. Something I've seen people talk about increasingly related to this issue is how kind of the rise of ideology is correlated with people falling away from the church. Um, religious nuns, which is a shorthand used to refer to people who identify as atheists or agnostics, as well as those who say their religion is basically nothing in particular. Pew Research says that now they make up roughly 23% of the U.S. adult population. And this is a pretty steep increase from 2007, the last time a similar Pew Research study was conducted when 16% of Americans were quote-unquote nuns. 
Um, we also see that this number is even bigger in young adults. Overall, Pew says that religiously unaffiliated people are more concentrated among young adults than other age groups. Approximately 35% of millennials are nuns. Also, Andrew Sullivan at The New York Magazine wrote in a piece earlier this year that, quote, we're mistaken if we believe that the collapse of Christianity in America has led to a decline in religion. He goes on to say that it is merely led to religious impulses being expressed by political cults. Like almost all new cultish impulses, they see no boundary between politics and their religion. And both cults really do minimize the importance of the individual in favor of either the oppressed group or the leader, unquote. Um, Michal, do you agree with this? What are your thoughts on this? Absolutely, Caroline, you're dead right here. I mean, but we have to bear in mind the fact that for many, many centuries, at least in Europe, continental Europe, where I'm based, you had lots of, as I said, members of the intelligentsia trying to replace religion with something else. Right before Marx, as, as I said, there was Hegel, but before Hegel, there was another guy called Spinoza, and uh, Spinoza was somebody who wanted to demythologize religious imagination. He wanted to basically uh, replace the Bible with a kind of rationalistic discourse, and he managed to do so because uh, by the end of the 19th century, in the European universities, theology was not a subject to be taught. People were not studying the Bible anymore. So what I'm trying to say here is that the attempt to replace traditional Christianity uh, with something different called secularism or, you know, a passion for revolution, uh, this attempt was, uh, was, I would say, always present, beginning with perhaps the 16th or the 17th century. So I'm not surprised that people today are uh, trying to, to replace religion or traditional religion, that's Christianity, Christianity with something called, uh, you know, cultural Marxism. I'm not surprised they want that. But the only thing they have to pay attention to is our capacity, our sort of natural inclination towards error, our capacity for creating chaos, mayhem, our inclination to be ideologically possessed. And the best, I think, the best cure for anybody who wants to think seriously about his or her life is to engage, I'd say, the greatest, mind, the greatest minds of, uh, of the 19th century when it comes to literature. Just think of Dostoevsky, the Russian writer. He was somebody who was looking at what was going on in the, in the literary circles of St. Petersburg, right? He was somebody who would go into a cafe and he would just say to Starbucks today and he would just sort of listen to what people had to say. And he was shocked to find out that people were seriously entertaining <clears throat> ideas about, you know, bringing about a, a global revolution, about destroying the old structures of family and, and, and religion. And he even made a prophecy in the, in the book called The Demons or The Possessed. He made a prophecy about what would happen in Russia in the 20th century. And guess what? He was right. Only four decades after Dostoevsky wrote The Possessed, that famous book, you know, we see somebody like uh, Lenin and somebody like Trotsky killing the Tsar, killing 
the old regime and bringing about the horrors of the gulag that Solzhenitsyn was so keen to speak about. So what I would tell our younger generation is just to pay attention to the lessons of history. Do not consider that uh, this time in the 21st century we can be fundamentally better equipped to create uh, a perfect world. This world of perfection doesn't belong uh, to the here and now. A world of perfection belongs only to God, only if he would allow us to participate in it. That's the kingdom of heaven. You said that you spent time in communist Romania. Can you tell us about that? What did you witness there? Well, I, of course, witnessed hunger. People don't realize that it was possible to survive only with like $30 a, a month or $50 a month. And uh, you could eat perhaps, I, I remember when I was a child, we, we were able to eat meat, for instance, for instance, once, once a month, right? Once a month. Uh, there were no eggs, for instance, for us to, <laughs> to, to use in our uh, kitchen. So my mom couldn't probably, properly provide for us. And we were fortunate enough to have some relatives living in the countryside to, to, just, to, just to get by. But again, I, I witnessed personally as a child a world in which uh, food was rationed, a world in which there was only one program on our TV screen, and that was uh, filled with the speeches of the dictator. I lived until I was 12 uh, in a world in which we could get information about the real world only from um, radio stations like um, you know, Radio Free Europe and Voice of America. I lived in a world in which we were not allowed to read books, including the Bible. Uh, we were not encouraged or allowed to go to church. I remember my grandfather telling me stories about how his entire property was taken from him, including the three horses, beautiful horse, horses he had, uh, the plow, everything, all the tools that he had as a farmer were taken from him. He was forced to become a member of the collective farm. So there was no sense of ownership. And there was a very green situation in, 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 in Romania and in Eastern Europe. You know? So we were not allowed to travel. We couldn't go to, uh, say, Western Germany. There was no way for me to learn English or French or any other foreign language as a visiting student. You know? So in general, I would say uh, this was a catastrophic social experiment, what we've been through. But thank goodness for Ronald Reagan. Thank goodness for the conservatives and for the Christians who prayed. Uh, I know that there were prayer lists in the 80s. People were keen to, to read every evening. And uh, I'm very thankful and very grateful that somebody like President Reagan uh, managed to bring to an end the horrors of communism in Eastern Europe. And I think he was, you know, he was granted this mission by God. I genuinely believe that. I believe that he met, not by accident, Paul. Paul II, John Paul II, and, um, and, and he realized that that's his life mission, and he was successful, very su su successful in doing that. If you could say one thing to people listening to this podcast, just to drive home the point that Marxism and systems that come out of Marxism are dangerous, what would you say? Envy is dangerous and cheap. Cultivate a sense of admiration. Try to learn from history. Look up. Try not to blame others. 
Try not to live a life of frustration and perennial blame for others. Try to take up some individual responsibility for your life and try to flourish within that context of freedom and individual responsibility. Mihail, thank you so much for joining me on Act In Line today. Thank you so much. America's robust civic life has been one of its most defining characteristics. Alexis de Tocqueville, a French aristocrat who studied America in the early 1830s, was astounded by people's inclination to form clubs and societies of every variety. These kinds of groups form our civil society and knit our communities together. But recent surveys of our nation's civic life indicate that some areas of the country are suffering from a complete breakdown of civil society and community. Our social fabric is fraying and giving way to social alienation, and these issues deserve our attention. Join us at the Omni Hotel in Pittsburgh on August 2 to explore why civil society is so important to the health of our country and how it can be restored. Register now at actin.org events. December 11, 2018 marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of Alexander Isayevich Solzhenitsyn. A writer of immense talent and spiritual depth, the century's greatest critic of the totalitarian immolation of liberty and human dignity, a thinker and moral witness who illumined the fate of the human soul hemmed in by barbed wire in the East and a materialist cornucopia in the West. A modern St. George, he slew the dragon of ideological despotism with rare eloquence, determination, and grit. For that alone, he deserves to be forever remembered. Those are the opening lines of a new essay at City Journal titled Solzhenitsyn, A Centennial Tribute. Its author, Daniel J. Mahoney, is a Solzhenitsyn scholar. He holds the Augustan Chair in Distinguished Scholarship at Assumption College in Worcester, Mass., and he joins us today on the podcast. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks very much, John. Real pleasure to be here. Today we'd like to talk about uh, two things uh, principally. The recent publication of Between Two Millstones, book one, uh, one in a series of memoirs by Solzhenitsyn, and it's uh, new out from University of Notre Dame Press, and I believe this is the first time we've had this in English. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, there was a. There's a. It's a follow-up to an earlier volume that's, I think, widely read and esteemed, called "The Oak and the Calf," that covered the years 1960 until Solzhenitsyn's forced exile from the Soviet Union in '74. And this pick thing, picks things up when Solzhenitsyn comes to the United uh, comes to the West, and then soon enough to the United States. And of the uh, of the tremendous output that this uh, great man gave us. Uh, Memoirs were a significant piece of that. Tell us a little bit about this book. The period is 1974 to 1978. Solzhenitsyn has just been expelled from the Soviet Union. The Gulag Archipelago has been published. Let's talk, first of all, about the title. What was he getting at with that title? Well, it's a great um, title. Each of the memoirs has uh, at least the, the two. This is the first part of a larger work between two millstones. The second volume will cover the period 70, the end of 78 until Solzhenitsyn's return to a post-communist Russia in 94. But the title is uh, comes from a Russian aphorism of the little grain between two millstones. Just like the previous book, The Oak and the Calf, was how the calf butted the oak. 
the oak of the totalitarian state. The driving theme in the book is that Solzhenitsyn, a man who knew how to deal extremely deftly with the Bolsheviks, with the totalitarian state, felt more unsure of himself when he came to the West because, you know, the first chapter is called, quite a long chapter, over 100 pages, is called Untethered. And Solzhenitsyn, among other things, Solzhenitsyn didn't know how to deal with the press, which uh, was not really interested in his larger message or his literary works, but uh, were interested in picayune things or narrowly political things that didn't particularly interest or consume Solzhenitsyn. So the millstones refers to, on the one hand, what he calls the Soviet dragon, his continuing enemy, this totalitarian immolation of liberty and human dignity that I spoke about in the City Journal piece. But the other millstone was a kind of self-assured and increasingly despotic secular liberalism in the West that, on the one hand, was soft on totalitarianism, on the other hand, had increasing contempt for Solzhenitsyn's deeper philosophical and spiritual message, you know, his message about repentance and self-limitation, his message that liberty always needs to be uh, undergirded by, you know, strong moral foundation. So he felt him, he, he, he felt him, he was really battling on two fronts, and it demanded very different strategy than the one he conducted solely against the Soviet dragon. Right. And you have to sympathize with the man. Here he is. He'd been battling the dragon for decades. He had spent years in a concentration camp. He'd been hounded by the KGB. They had made an attempt. Had cancer. His, had cancer. Attempt on his life. His publications needed to be shared clandestinely, smuggled to the West. He uh, had devoted all of his strength to heroically battling this criminally unjust regime from the inside. He comes to the West and... You know, it had to be a little bit bewildering for him, and things turned on him pretty quickly from the elites, did they not? Journalists, scholars, they did, they did. And um, you know, for example, Solzhenitsyn talks about this rather silly interview Walter Cronkite conducted with him in 1974 on CBS, and Cronkite didn't ask any questions that were pertinent. He didn't know Solzhenitsyn's work. He, uh, you know, he he starts sort of attacking Solzhenitsyn with all sorts of cliches. And at one point, uh, when Solzhenitsyn's in Zurich, and he's just being continually hounded by the Western press, he turned to a journalist and in frustration said, you're worse than the KGB. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that was part, yes, they turned on him very, very quickly with his letter to the Soviet leaders, which called for the Soviet state to jettison totalitarianism, to introduce the rule of law, to get rid of collectivization, to stop persecuting believers, but he said the movement toward democratic self-government would take time, and uh, and almost immediately Solzhenitsyn was denounced for being uh, in favor of dictatorship or authoritarianism. Solzhenitsyn said in the early 90s, before he returned to post-communist Russia, I think it was an interview with Mike Wallace, and Mike Wallace said, you know, something like, are you a monarchist, a fascist, an anti-Semite, you know, all the, the, the sort of calumnies that were repeated by the ignorant. And, and um, Solzhenitsyn says at one point, they never give any quotes. You know, this kind of a herd mentality with the same lies. So Solzhenitsyn, you know, he was a master in confronting and repudiating the ideological lie in the East, 
he comments near the end of the book about the disproportion between what he actually said in the Harvard address in June 78 and how the, what the press reported. And he said, you know, when I was in the Soviet Union and I said, live not by lies, people accepted that or understood it in the West. But he says, when I say it in a, a different way, not equating the two systems by any means, that we shouldn't live by lies in the West either, he said, it's a very colloquial phrase, he says, people told me to go take a hike. Yeah, that was probably euphemistically how they expressed it. Yes, 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 absolutely. If I may, let me read some of Solzhenitsyn's own words from that period. He was talking about letter to the Soviet leaders. It's uh, 1973, and he's talking about the circumstances around publishing his last project, the letter, and another essay called Live Not by Lies. Quote, My eyes were trained on our people and our government while the West was only a faraway place where my works were being published. I did not feel the presence of the West in any significant way. I did not in any way sense that a sizable core of Western public opinion had begun to turn against me two years earlier in reaction to several publications. My Lenten letter to the patriarch, on account of my steadfast focus on Orthodox Christianity, and my book, August 1914, on account of my condemnation of the revolutionaries and liberals and my approval of military service. In the United States, this coincided with the Vietnam War. You get a sense where they started to sort of recoil when they found out that Solzhenitsyn was uh, who he really was and uh, didn't quite jibe with uh, what they had hoped for and expected from him as the dragon slayer. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, that turning against Solzhenitsyn happened among the dissident intelligentsia in the Soviet Union as well as secular elites in the uh, uh, United States and Western Europe. Uh, I think with August 1914, people discovered that Solzhenitsyn, uh, he was an anti-communist, an anti-totalitarian, but he was a Christian and he was a Russian patriot. And many, uh, many of the sort of left liberal Russian dissidents were appalled by this. And then in the West, uh, Mayor McCarthy, I think, Hannah Arendt's friend, the famous novelist, wrote an article saying, Solzhenitsyn is not one of us. And course, uh, he course, wasn't, yeah. Yeah, of you know, not. and, yeah. uh, you know, in the Nobel lecture already, he had spoken about the spirit of Munich, and uh, he had quoted Dostoevsky about the danger of addiction to progressive little notions. And yes, in, uh, in, in, in uh, The Red Wheel, of which August 1914 is the first volume, Solzhenitsyn makes very clear that the liberals and socialists in Russia who saw no enemies to the left and did everything to bring down the czarist regime, which had many problems as Solzhenitsyn highlights. But they, their, their, their task was almost wholly negative and destructive. And so Solzhenitsyn did not belong to the same spiritual family. And they began to sense that in the early 70s with all those things, with uh, August 14th, with the letter to the patriarch Pimen, with the um, publication of the letter, and also, if you read the Gulag Archipelago deeply, yes, it is the greatest indictment of a political regime ever written, but it is also a powerful testimony to the ascent of the soul or to the spiritual possibilities that cannot be uh, permanently undermined by totalitarianism. So I think Solzhenitsyn's, um, the other millstone, uh, um, you know, between 71 and 74, 75, began to see that uh, Solzhenitsyn was not one of them. Yeah, and as you say in your foreword uh, to this volume, 
that he didn't become embittered. You, you say, um, quote, rather he strove to connect to those healthy elements in Western American society that were still open to the old verities and to the truth about the human soul. And indeed he did. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, there's a fascinating discussion of the Harvard Address and the reaction to it near the end of the volume. I think it was excerpted in National Review in June. But there Solzhenitsyn says, in addition to the predictable left-liberal denunciations of the Harvard Address, uh, there were many editorials in small-town newspapers, letters from thousands of Americans that he received who resonated that gave Solzhenitsyn hope that, you might say, the elites who despised his uh, spiritual and political message were not representative of the American people or Western peoples as a whole. Well, I think his intuition was sound, and uh, he found something that still can be found in this country. I think that's right. Maybe maybe less so than in 1978, but yeah, it's still there. Yeah, yeah. You know, that, I, think yeah. It mean, I think meaningfully in the 70s, one could talk about the silent majority and on a many cultural and moral issues. I'm not so sure that the silent majority is still the majority, but it's still a not inconsiderable part of who the American people are. And, of course, those older sentiments and truths can be rekindled by paying attention to people like Solzhenitsyn, among others. Tell us a little bit about uh, some of your favorite passages, episodes in this first part of Between Two Millstones. What can readers uh, look forward to in these sketches of exile? Well, I think the first chapter, the first 15 or 16 pages of Untethered, the first day Solzhenitsyn is in Germany staying at Heinrich Boll's house, dealing uh, in a somewhat uncomprehending way with this um, this Western media that won't leave him alone, I think it's quite remarkable because the way Solzhenitsyn presents the first section of Untethered, he realizes he's in another world and is going to have to learn another mode of adaptation in dealing with what turns out to be if not the same kind of enemy as the Soviet dragon, then a, a sort of social force that was not friendly to what Solzhenitsyn represented. So I think that's a great section. I think a commentary magazine excerpted that. One of my favorite passages is uh, it's about a third of the book into the book, uh, maybe less than that. It's uh, when Solzhenitsyn was still in Switzerland, and he participated in and observed uh, the ele- elections in a, a Catholic Canton Appenzell in Switzerland, and uh, he points out that these uh, cantonal traditions of self-government go back to the 13th century, says predating the Enlightenment. You know, these traditions of morally serious, civically serious self-government. Solzhenitsyn expresses his limitless admiration for this sort of sturdy Swiss democracy where, you know, freedom is rooted in law and rooted in self-limitation and rooted in the religious tradition of the West. And, of course, elsewhere, he expresses a similar admiration for local self-government in New England. So I think that that's not only a beautifully written passage, seven, eight pages, but it's uh, very revealing of Solzhenitsyn's uh, moral and political philosophy. I'd say the treatment of the Harvard address near the end of the book is first rate. But also uh, some of the machinations, the KGB, I mean, uh, a group of Czechs, and Solzhenitsyn had a great deal of sympathy for the Czechs because of how badly they had suffered under communism 
and the repression of the Prague Spring in 1968, and a Czech couple volunteered essentially to be helpers and secretaries for Solzhenitsyn. Uh, and Solzhenitsyn says, you know, I never let down my guard. I can always spot, you know, intimidation or machinations of the secret police. But he hired these guys, and they turned out to be KGB agents. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and there are other... Um, they even fooled the KGB. him. Yeah. yeah, they fooled him for a while, and it caused some damage. And he also talks about efforts of the KGB to... Uh, forge his signature and to make it look like he had been a snitch in the camps and this kind of thing. And Solzhenitsyn responded very truthfully and forcefully to all of this. But that war with the uh, Soviet dragon continued very much when he was in the West. And, um, oh, and there are many, I think, um, uh, some of his, uh, uh, his accounts of his trips to France and England, especially some be- beautiful travel writing about Spain, right after the fall of the Franco regime, and Solzhenitsyn went to Spain, and he was advising the Spanish to move forward with their democracy, but not to make some of the same mistakes that contemporary West Europe was making in terms of repudiating the Christian tradition. And that's really wonderful writing. And some of his observations about the people he met and the land, and uh, it's just you, you really see an extremely talented writer at work. As we, when we blog this podcast, we'll be linking to the book so you can find it easily when it goes up. At this point, I would like to turn to another project you're involved in, the Alexander Solzhenitsyn Center. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what the inspiration for that was. Um, I understand you're uh, directing this uh, with Alexander Solzhenitsyn's sons. You can find it at solzhenitsyncenter.org. So tell us, uh, I've been on the site, and it's a really uh, helpful and uh, interesting resource. What do you hope to do with this project? Yeah, you know, there's an even more comprehensive site in Russia, but we wanted to produce a site that would be of use and interest to Anglophone readers that would be as comprehensive as possible. That would include a blog that could keep people abreast of news about Solzhenitsyn's publications, about conferences, about other events that are going on. And, of course, the centennial year has been extremely busy in that regard, which means I've been very busy in that regard. But uh, you can turn to the blog and find everything of interest to Solzhenitsyn anywhere in the world. Um, and usually commented upon or linked to within weeks and sometimes days of the event. Uh, we have a section that gives people access to the different editions of Solzhenitsyn's work in English with ample information about the nature of the various books he wrote, some publicistic, some nonfiction, many simply literary uh, although always dealing with uh, important moral and sometimes political themes. You can have access to some of Solzhenitsyn's most important speeches. Yeah, you know, I was just on the site, and there are documentaries with English subtitles that have just uh, been posted where you can actually hear Solzhenitsyn in his own words talking about Yeah, that his trilogy uh, was done in first eight years of the 21st century, 
The one I've watched most recently is uh, called Solzhenitsyn at the Last Bend of the River. But uh, the Russian director, whose name escapes me at the, at the present moment, very sympathetic to Solzhenitsyn, sat down with him. And this is an older Solzhenitsyn who I would say is quite, he's physically frail or frailer, but he's quite wise, quite insightful, quite spiritually luminous. And um, he answers a whole series of questions on the widest range of themes and issues as I suggested a moment ago, with great spiritual depth. And the wonderful thing about this is there are excellent English subtitles, but you can see Solzhenitsyn, you can hear his voice. You know, I think among other things, Solzhenitsyn is a great writer, uh, but he is also a man of uh, a certain spiritual luminosity and wisdom, and I think that, that comes across very nicely in these. I think it's posted right at the top of the blog section right now. Many people had asked about these, so... The Solzhenitsyn's just made them available so, again, people could have this more direct access to Solzhenitsyn's voice. I think people will be uh, deeply impressed by these. And uh, I know when I first watched them, I, uh, you know, I, I watched them all. I watched them each as they came out, and then I felt an obligation to watch them again, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it's really something else. Well, Dan, it's been, uh, again, a pleasure to have you on the podcast to discuss the new book, Between Two Millstones. And I'd like to thank you once more for sharing your insights about Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Yeah, and thank you, John. I just want to add that I'm, I, as my late colleague at, at Erickson, we're always deeply appreciative of the interest that the Acton, you in particular, but the Acton Institute more broadly has shown in the life and enduring message of Solzhenitsyn, so it's deeply appreciated. Thank you for listening today. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I would love to hear it. Every week, our podcast team is working to bring you the best show, and we couldn't do it without you. Let me know what you think about this podcast and email me at actinline at actin.org. This episode of Act in Line is produced and edited by me, Caroline Roberts, with audio mixing by Doug Nagel. 